0: Where is Jesus today, and what is He doing? We celebrate at this time of year the first coming of Jesus, but we would obviously have nothing to celebrate were it not for Christ's resurrection and His promised return. Our faith and our hope rest in the reality that Jesus lives today and He's coming again. Although we have never seen Him, as Peter put it, we love Jesus and we await his return with keen anticipation and isn't it true that when there is someone who leaves you whom you very much love you want to know where that person is and what they're doing some of you children understand this maybe your father leaves on a business trip of some sort is gone for a couple of weeks and you find yourself really missing dad Don't you wonder where he is and what he's doing? I guess this is where postcards come from and the modern equivalents of picture phones and email and the like. We want to stay in touch with those that we love that are gone. We want to know where they are and we want to know what they're doing. It's natural. Some of you parents understand this as you send a child off to college or to military and you wonder where they are and what they're doing right now. If we truly love Jesus Christ and are anxious for His return, then we will rejoice to know where Jesus is and what He is doing right now. I caution you as we look to this question, please understand this is not a matter of trivial curiosity. An accurate knowledge of what Jesus is doing today is vital to your faith. Yet many believers simply do not think much about it. Well, we need to think about it. We need to think deeply about it. We need to think about it to understand where Jesus is is a part of understanding our love for Him and how we relate to Him. Where is He and what is He doing Let us consider with interest the biblical light on this matter. We look at a number of texts today. We're going to take you from passage to passage, so get ready to turn. And let's look and begin where we have left off in recent weeks at Luke chapter 22 and verse 69. I don't want to belabor this point, but I do want us to springboard off of these statements of Jesus that we have recently considered and to take them further. So by way of repetition, Luke chapter 22 and verse 69, at the trial of Jesus, He says to His interrogators, verse 69, and this is the statement and the confession, you remember, that hangs Jesus. It's not anything they come up with. It's what He says and what He initiates. And He says far more than they ever expected. When He says in Luke 22, 69, But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Let's go back again to Daniel chapter 7. The notion of the Son of Man sharing the throne of the mighty God points us there unmistakably. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. In my vision, writes the prophet Daniel in 7.13, at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. So this Son of Man is not the Ancient of Days as such, but is led into His presence. And verse 14, He, the Son of Man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So this One who is not the Ancient of Days is given divine prerogatives. The whole world worships Him, and the Ancient of Days welcomes them to do so, and brings this Son of Man into His presence and gives Him authority and power. Jesus says, I am that man. From now on, Jesus will be sitting in ruling authority at the right hand of God from now on, which I take to mean upon the pending completion of Jesus' earthly ministry. Right now, I am captive to you, says Jesus. You are seated as my judges, but when I break free, from now on, I will be sitting at the right hand of God. Luke chapter 24 and verse 51. As Jesus Jesus ascends into heaven and His disciples bid Him farewell there on the Mount of Olives. Luke chapter 24 and verse 51. We read the historical account. Luke 24, 51, while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Where is Jesus? It's quite clear. He's taken up into heaven. From now on, taken into heaven, the ascension of Jesus then is more than a departure. It was a departure. Jesus left the disciples staring up into space on the Mount of Olives. He was gone. But Christ's ascension was also an arrival, and we need to understand this. On that day, Jesus entered the presence of God in heaven. Now Luke really does not draw out the implications here in his gospel, but he does so in his second work, the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, we find the Apostle Peter standing before an astonished crowd. You remember the account as you work your way there. The disciples had been baptized with the Holy Spirit. They were speaking in languages that they had never studied. They were communicating with people in these languages. And the bewildered crowd wants an explanation. Peter stands and preaches and gives them an explanation. He takes this opportunity to preach the gospel of Christ and we pick up his sermon in midstream at verse 32 Luke or Acts chapter 2 and verse 32 God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact exalted to the right hand of God He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. I'd like you to focus at verse 33, that first part of the the verse. He is exalted to the right hand of God. So Jesus, verse 32, rises from the dead, and Peter then declares that Jesus' promise to be seated in a position of ruling authority next to God has been realized. Exalted to the right hand of God, He has poured out His Spirit. We notice the second part of verse 33. The prophets have long prophesied the day when God would pour out His Spirit upon all people. Jesus, in His ministry, says, I will do that. I will pour out My Spirit upon you. I will send the Spirit of God when I depart, John chapters 14 and 16. Then Jesus ascends into the heavens before the very eyes of the apostles, and what is the tangible proof that he has ascended to the Father's throne? The tangible proof that Jesus now is reigning at God's right hand is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We may not tend to think of it in those terms, but I think that that is a legitimate way to look at Christ's ministry here in Acts chapter 2. It is the birth, I believe, of the church, it is the giving of the gift of the Spirit, but it is also a demonstration that Jesus Christ is exalted, is seated at the Father's right hand. Now this outpouring of the Spirit, I don't believe, completely fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy that the Spirit would baptize all people. But this outpouring of the Spirit upon Christ's disciples was that promise. Not in fullness, but in very nature. It was that which was prophesied. Jesus is fulfilling His promise. Pouring out the Holy Spirit, it says to his followers, he is exalted in heaven. And that's precisely what Peter stresses here. God has raised Jesus to life. He has exalted him at his right hand. And it is he, the reigning Christ, who pours out his spirit here as you witness it. Verse 34, for David did not ascend to heaven. And yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Here Peter obviously quotes Psalm 110, which we read earlier. This psalm prophesies the coronation of David's greater son as David's Lord. And by quoting Psalm 110, Peter clearly links Christ's reign in heaven to David's prophecy. There's no other reason to quote Psalm 110 here. The son, of God, the son of David has been seated as co-regent with God, with the ancient of days. Drawing from Daniel. Verse 35, uh, verse 36, rather. Therefore, concludes Peter: let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, Savior, whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. This is a past tense. He has made Him Lord and Christ. This is who He is. He is the sovereign co-regent reigning with God. He is Christ, the Messiah sent from God to redeem His people. Now in Acts chapter 3, we find Peter again preaching. And let me lift out of that sermon just one sentence about Jesus. Chapter 3 and verse 21. Acts chapter 3 and verse 21, Peter preaches, He, that is Jesus, must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as He promised long ago through His holy prophets. This statement indicates, and hear me, it indicates that Jesus' reign in heaven is transitional in nature. That is, some things that God promised in the Old Testament were not fulfilled in Christ's first coming. So David's greater son, Jesus, reigns now in heaven, but does so in anticipation of a future day when he will reign and God will restore everything as he has promised. And what the Old Testament prophets prophesied was that Messiah would rule with a rod of iron from David's throne over the world. That day is yet coming. Yet this Jesus reigns at the Father's right hand. So there is a both and, we see. 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter loved this truth, and he stressed it often. He says in 1 Peter chapter 3 of Jesus Christ, verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 22. Hear Him carefully as Peter says of Jesus. He has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. Sitting at God's right hand means that Jesus reigns with authority over all powers. That is the position of authority. David's son, who will reign on earth over the nations, does reign now in heaven over all authorities. And we will confirm that further from another text, from another author, in a few moments, by God's grace. But let's turn first to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. if Luke wrote the book of Hebrews. He's really drilling this point. We cannot prove that, but I have suspicions at times that Luke might be the author here. We don't know, but Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. Think of what it says about the Son. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe a high christology that we discussed last week the apostles had this high view of Christ he made all things through him notice what verse 3 says the son is the radiance of god's glory and the exact representation of his being very similar to what we read in colossians 1 last week sustaining all things by the power of his word there's the apostolic message again Colossians 1, Christ sustaining all things. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Again, a position of ruling and a completed act. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1 adds to this. We have a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, we read that having endured the cross, scorning its shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21, I'll just quote these passages. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. That statement is made in Revelation chapter 3 prior to the, the discussion of future days. I sat down with my Father on His throne, says Jesus. Now let's go to Hebrews 1 and verse 13. Later in this chapter, Hebrews 1 and verse 13. The author of Hebrews questions, to which of the angels did God ever say? Now, these readers are very enamored with angels. Angels are a big deal. Not on wallpaper and lapel pens. They are seen to be real creatures with mediating powers. In fact, mediating the Word of God to His people through uh, inspiration, uh, the inspiration of the text of Scripture. They were part of that in the view of these Hebrew believers. They were a big deal. But the author says, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Again, quoting Psalm 110. The prophecy that a son of David would rule at God's right hand has been realized in Jesus Christ. Now, David also prophesies in Psalm 110, verse 4, that his greater son, would serve as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. You remember that idea. Not after the order of of Levi, a Levitical priest, but after the order of Melchizedek. He would serve as king and as priest and thus must come from an order other than the Levitical priesthood because they were not capable of serving as kings. This prophecy of a Melchizedekian king is applied to Jesus in Hebrews 6. Hebrews chapter 6, we find again that Psalm 110 is fulfilled in Christ. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. So, Hebrews 6, verse 19, paralleling the work of Jesus to the Old Testament tabernacle and the inner sanctum. Notice what it says of Jesus in heaven's inner sanctum. Where, verse 20, where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What is Jesus doing at God's right hand. Hebrews 1 says that he is reigning. Hebrews 1.13 says that he is interceding at the Father's right hand as a high priest for us. Jesus has entered the throne room of God on our behalf. It really should send chills up our spine if we really smell it and sense it and see it. He stands there before the Father in our behalf, pleading as our great high priest. This idea is repeated near the end of chapter 7 where the author compares the earthly Levitical priesthood with that of the heavenly priesthood of Jesus. 7.23 Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. The the, the Levitical priests just keep dropping over dead. They're sinners. It's life. They die. But because Jesus lives forever, He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. Consider this truth. Jesus represents us to the Father. He pleads in our behalf. He administrates our salvation before the throne of God. That is what he is doing today. Remember the words of that great song that we sing from time to time. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me, he will never die. He will plead forever in our behalf. For our sanctification, for our righteousness, for our right standing before God. Our place before the Father is guaranteed by the great high priest, Jesus Christ, who pleads forever, who will never die. At God's right hand, He intercedes in behalf of His people. But Jesus' reign also extends beyond heaven's throne. It is not merely a matter of pleading with the Father. There is more that is here. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. We have listened to Peter, we have listened to Luke. We come now to the writings of the Apostle John. They are all in agreement on this point. John writes, verse 4, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. That's Asia Minor, Turkey today. Grace and peace to you from Him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before His throne, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, notice the phrase, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. John writes this to these Gentile churches in Asia Minor. It does not say that Jesus will become the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, there is a sense in its fullness which that it is yet a pending issue. It does not speak, however, of His coming to set up His rule over the kingdoms of the earth. It speaks of Jesus now ruling the kings of the earth. He is their ruler. His rule from heaven is operative on earth. He reigns there, He pours out His Spirit upon His people, but He is also reigning over the kings of the earth. Notice the remainder of verse 5. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve His God and Father, to Him be glory and power forever and ever. The us here is a reference to the Apostle John and to his readers, namely these seven churches in Asia Minor. These Gentile Christians form, says John, a kingdom of priests. They are a kingdom and priests, the king over which is whom? It is obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus rules as the head of His church, dispensing His saving grace, and He rules as sovereign king of kings. Now we say, wait a minute. I'm not catching that in the Star Tribune and the Pioneer Press. It doesn't really look like Jesus is reigning over the kings of this earth. It seems like they're pretty much running the show any way they choose to run it. Do we have this right? Are we missing something? How are we to conceive this statement that he rules over the kings of the earth? Back to Hebrews for some clarification. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5. Again, comparing Jesus here with angels, the superiority of Christ being demonstrated, he says in Hebrews 2.5, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him? Psalm 8, verses 4 and 6, he's, 4 through 6, he's quoting. The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything under his feet. Now, get this, says the writer of Hebrews. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to Him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to Him. So it's not that it's not subject to Him, it's that we don't see it that way right now. But we see Jesus, verse 9, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because He suffered death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. Everything is subject to the authority of Jesus Christ as He rules from heaven's throne, but we do not presently see evidence of this reality in daily life. One day we will, but not yet. There is coming a day when the faith will be made sight. There is coming a day when, we, when reality will burst through the clouds and when all will be what God has prophesied it to be. He reigns now. He will reign in greater fullness or in completion in the physical sense of the word here on earth in the future. Now this truth, this reality, may be more significant than we begin to understand. It has tremendous significance to our theological constructs, but I would like us to focus on its significance to our view of this world, to who we are. Where is Jesus and what is He doing? He is reigning. He is reigning by dispensing His salvation gifts upon His church. He is ruling them as a kingdom of priests in this world amidst other kingdoms. He is ruling the kingdoms of this world. What does that mean? I think it certainly speaks to us. Let's stop for a few moments here and consider. It says something to us about the whole issue of evangelism, doesn't it? Listen to these familiar words in a fresh way. On the basis of what we have seen established here in Scripture, listen to these familiar words again. All authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of Of the age the priest who will serve forever will never leave us and the reason that we proclaim the gospel to unbelievers is not to increase the size of our church those who think that way I don't know how to say it but to say their candlestick is very vulnerable We don't witness the truth of Christ to increase the numbers of our assembly. That is blasphemous. We witness the truth of Jesus Christ because Jesus reigns in heaven. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and He has commissioned us to traverse the globe as His kingdom of priests representing Him in this world. I serve as a priest in a kingdom that is not of this world. And as we do, let us remember again that he will never leave us or forsake us. He will pour out the Spirit and transformational power upon those who respond in faith to this saving gospel of Jesus. Do you not want a piece of that work? We're not talking about a sales pitch. We're not talking about a recruiting effort. We are talking about serving the king of heaven. And seeing him pour out his spirit upon an unbeliever who responds in faith and is baptized in that moment mysteriously by the Spirit of God and begins a lifelong process of transformation to believe truths that are unbelievable and to change in the heart in ways that are unimaginable and cannot be manipulated by a community of people. Jesus Christ is reigning in heaven. And the evidence of his reign is the lives of transformed people. He is pouring out his spirit upon lost souls and he's saving them. Do you not want a piece of that action? Why would we want to be anything else but an obedient priest who proclaims the truth to a lost world? I don't know if there is any better opportunity in this world to see evidence of the reign of Jesus Christ in His ascended position at the Father's right hand than to take the gospel of Christ and to watch it transform a person in front of your eyes. Now we don't always have that privilege. It's a sowing and reaping issue, isn't it? And we do mostly sowing. But when you have that opportunity to take that gospel And to watch someone turn from light to darkness, that's about as close as you can get to seeing Jesus at work. May we see him at work. May we press faithfully and honorably and winsomely to be his priests in this world, conveying the gospel of Christ. This should transform the way that we share the gospel and look at evangelism. It certainly should alter our world view. The vision we need of Jesus for evangelism is the vision that we need to interpret our whole world. And in fact, sometimes I'm not sure which one should come first. Sometimes we enter into this world as this distinct body of Christians thinking that the world is run by Satan, which he is the God of this age, but that somehow Jesus is up there just really hoping things work out for us and wishing he could help us out. But he's not able to because he's in heaven. It's not that at all. We need to see the whole world differently. Jesus has not slipped away into a never-never land where he fritters his days away primping for his second coming. He is reigning. He is the Lord. He's the Lord of the president of this nation, and he is the Lord of every president and king on this earth. And everybody that comes below He reigns. As He reigns over all authorities, He is slowly, patiently bringing His enemies to submit to His rule while leaving open the window for repentance to unbelievers. He is long-suffering toward the people of this earth, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He delays His return purposefully. We must read history and current events from this perspective. All things and all people are being funneled toward a day when Jesus is seen for who he is. The creator, the sustainer, and the ruling Lord of all. He is that now. It's becoming clear as he works through history, and this view of world affairs needs to influence how we view ourselves as well. How we look at ourselves as God's people. How we reach the lost, how we view the world, and how we look at ourselves. The church forms a kingdom of priests that crosses the borders of many earthly kingdoms on the the globe. I am much closer to people on the other side of this planet than I am to my neighbors who do not know Christ as Savior. I can cross this globe and I can go on the other side and find people there who know what I hold dear and who know the Savior that I know and who serve Him as Lord and Christ. And I can meet with people who live in this culture and know all of its laws and all of its rules and all of its mores and have virtually nothing in common because I am in a different kingdom. I'm a citizen of another land. We are a called out people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's unique people, 1 Peter 2.9. Jesus is in reality our king, our head, and our protection and hope. Therefore, says the author of Hebrews, he is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. Christian, the ruler of the universe, the reigning Son of Man, pleads your case before the Father's throne. You are not forgotten. You are not ill-equipped. You are not going to fall from Jesus' care. He lives to pray for you. And if I speak to any here today who do not know Christ as Savior, who cannot say, I am one of His people, someday you will bow the knee to Jesus as Lord. If you reject Him in this life, He will stand over you on that day as judge, not as Savior. Today is the day to submit to His salvation. Today is the day of salvation. And I would call you to be reconciled to Jesus Christ. It may be possible that you cannot see this now. Cannot understand what is being said. But you need to at least understand this. This is the biblical view of who Jesus Christ is. And there was a day when he burst the bonds of death to prove that this is in fact who He is. You do not want to go into eternity and to meet Him having scorned His saving grace. I would call you to submit to His Lordship. If you submit to any authority in this life outside of yourself, then you know that it is because you see that person or that nation or that law as an authority to which you must submit. There is no higher authority. If you have not submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that He provides, then see who He is and come to Him today. Be reconciled to God. Let's bow for prayer. We give thanks, our Father, for Your Word, and it stretches us. It stretches us beyond our human capacities. It reworks our thinking. And I pray whatever work You are doing in the lives of Your people that You will help us to discern the truth of Your Word, to not be tied to anyone's system, to not be tied to what we have thought in the past, to be submissive to the word of God and to ever be thinking clearly about it. I pray, Father, that we would not be tied down to our own small view of this world and of Christ's reign. And I pray, Father, that by your grace you would open our eyes to see. We would see our world, see the unbelievers in it, and see ourselves as your church in the right perspective. And I pray, Father, that today would be a day of salvation, that You would do this wonderful work of pouring out Your Spirit upon one who would turn in repentance, trusting Jesus Christ as Savior. I ask, God, that You would bring such a one to Yourself today that we might rejoice with the work that You are doing. Lord, that we as Your people might rejoice in the exalted Christ. That we might submit to His commission and His call and learn to trust Your hand as we change this world by Your power and for Your glory. We pray these things as we lay them down, these requests at Your feet, asking that You'll work through us. In Christ's name, amen.